Well, we continue today in our study of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Um, we ran out of time last week uh, to finish it up, which gave me a chance to come back to it and really start looking at it. At even some of the material we looked at last week, to look at it a little bit differently again so that we can work our way through this extraordinary passage of Scripture. Now that you all have it in front of you, uh, let's read it in its entirety together out loud so that we all have a renewed understanding of what it is that we are reading or studying today. Let's start with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay. Last week, we only got through verse 5, but I'm going to take another look at verse 5. There's so much here. Last week, we did a deep dive, if you want to call it that, a deep dive into the biblical definition of hope. Does anybody remember what our definition was? Of course not. <laughs> because you haven't been challenged in the past week to define hope by anybody. Our simplistic definition was an assured expectation. That's the biblical definition of hope. Assured expectation. Because in the world... Hope is defined as wishful thinking. And wishful thinking is a, I hope I get a new sled for Christmas. That's wishful thinking, has nothing to do with scripture. Where scripture is an assured expectation that what has been promised is absolutely going to happen. So in this, these five verses, we talked about peace, faith, access, grace, rejoicing, standing, suffering, endurance, character, and hope. 
some light fare for the for the remainder of the week. <clears throat> but verse five reads, "And hope does not put us to shame." The ESV's translation there is odd. How could I don't understand what that means. The New American Standard actually gives us, a, I think, a better translation for our common understanding, is that hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. But how do we know that? I mean, hope does not disappoint. Hope does not put us to shame. Where does this assurance come from? Well, that's why I gave you a handout on page two of your, what you've received. We know this because God is faithful. So you have the word faith in this passage, but that's trying to define the faith that we have been given by God for salvation. But it then says that faith engenders hope, which is an assured expectation, but how do we know that this hope is going to be fulfilled? It's because God is faithful. So you see the circle. Look at these passages. Deuteronomy 7.9 Know therefore that the, God, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God. 2 Timothy 2.13 he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Isaiah 11.5 Faithfulness is the belt around God's loins. It's very picturesque, but it's what holds it all together. Psalm 36.5 Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Hebrews 10.23, which we read last week. <clears throat> Let us hold fast the confession of of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful 1 Corinthians 1 9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son 1 Corinthians 1 8 the previous verse he will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Jude 24 It's because there's only one chapter. You have to refer to the verse. Um, Jude 24 He is able, he is faithful to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And in Lamentations, of course, Jeremiah writes, Great is thy faithfulness. Because God is faithful, we have been justified by faith. 
Because God is faithful, we have been declared righteous by God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Because God is faithful, we therefore have peace with God. Because God is faithful, we are anchored to God through the hope of glory. Everything I just said right there is in verses 1 through 5. And it all comes around when you look at the extraordinary interplay of these words in our understanding of our salvation and who God is. I mean, think about it this way. The word theos, the Greek word theos, or God, is used 153 times in the book of Romans. More so than any other book of the entire New Testament, you have the word God, or theos, used. It's used seven times in these 11 verses. Very quickly, I'll rattle them off. Verse 1, we have peace with God. Verse 2, we talk of the glory of God. Verse 5, the love of God. Verse 8, God shows His love. Verse 9, the wrath of God. Verse 10, reconcile to God. Verse 11, we rejoice in God. Huh, guess what? What's this verse, what are these verses about? Here's the irony. Last week, I handed you a handout called The Blessings of Justification, which was kind of a 12-point recitation of the various blessings we receive in justification. So it sounds like we get something out of all this. Isn't that cool? Aren't we special? That turns the scriptures into our insurance benefits package upon our employment. When in reality, this entire passage is not about us. It's about God and our relationship to Him and not what we do to receive it, but His gift of all of this for us. Isn't it amazing? We just kind of flip it around because we're forever looking at these passages. And even I did last week in my studies, looking at what are the benefits that we receive. Oh, isn't that nice? Thank you, Jesus. We appreciate it. We praise you. That's not being facetious. I'm saying we should say that. We should be thankful and grateful. But it's not the topic, and it's not the focus. But why does all of this come to us? And it's right there in verse 5. Because God's love, His agape, has been poured into our hearts. God's love. Alright, so I had to stop myself and go, okay, yeah, that's nice. You know, we talk a lot about God's love, and there's a lot of passages in the Bible about love, and about God's love. And... Well, Michael Bird, in his commentary on Romans, he writes this. 
The gospel confronts individuals with a message of God's love in Christ Jesus. A message they need to respond to if they are to avoid the ruin of wrath against their sin. We need to keep re-evangelizing our churches because once the gospel is assumed, it is soon forgotten. And what is forgotten is replaced with something else. Too often, those enmeshed in church culture, even from birth, can be lulled into trusting in their religiosity rather than trusting in Jesus for redemption. That's why we need to keep preaching, and I will add teaching, the gospel in our churches. Even if the choir is convinced, we need to make sure our churches never become a place where the sinner sulks in sorrow and the self-righteous never feel solace. So we will look today at God's love, a simplistic concept, one that we are all in agreement. My guess is I went around and polled the room, we would 100% say, yay God, and yes, you loved us. Well, let's look at that. Let's look at it deeply. The love of God, the agape, has flooded our hearts. It has overflown our hearts. The pouring of this. It did not rain upon us. God's love was not rained on us one drop at a time, as if there was a budget. It is not doled out to us as if we are drought stricken. And in a a world that we live in in Phoenix, water is a precious commodity. And we watch an awful lot of it during the monsoon season that we're in run off. And we're going, wait, come back. (laughs) We we need that stuff. Where's it going? Oh, it went down the drain. You know, it just, it comes in such a deluge that we're, oh, uh, what do we do with it? Oh, just let it run off into the desert and, you know, a few new wildflowers will pop up. And then we need water the next week and wonder where we're going to get it. This is not what is being described. What's being described here is Niagara Falls. A torrent. If you've ever been to a place like Niagara Falls or something similar, and you take one of those little boats and get close as you can without destroying the boat, the roar of that water is torrential. And at Niagara Falls, everyone's handed, you know, little clear plastic rain jackets and hoods, and it doesn't help, you know. If you ever go, wear clothes that will dry easily after you visit. You know, don't wear a wool coat. I mean, just don't do it, because it just permeates, and you're coming close to this, and you're realizing there's no way to turn it off. You can't just go, oh, we don't need that today. Yeah, they have dammed up 
the river to do certain work on Niagara Falls in the past. But that is the picture of God's love pouring out on us to overflowing. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love, his agape for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love is contrasted against the background of sin, which we have been reading about in all the previous verses. Because I had heard that an early church father had, uh, in the last years of his life, had an associate read him the book of Romans twice a week in its entirety, I thought, hmm, what if I were to, while I'm in my car, just have an audio of the book of Romans repeating, which I have been doing for the last couple weeks. The problem with that, and I know it's a problem for all of you, your mind tends to wander. And then you go, wait, what, what did he just say? Oh, fooey. You know, because his logic is so extraordinary. But after the second time, it starts to lock in. And after the third time, it really starts to lock in. And I know Philip has this experience as someone who's trying to memorize the book of Romans. You go over and over and over and over again, and it's not something you do in two weeks. It's gonna take years, because it's so important and the language is so critical and so intentional through the power of the Holy Spirit for us. But when you start and only read chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, you forget chapter 1, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse. Chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then comes chapter 5 where it says that God pours out his love on us. Really? Just try to grasp this for a moment. Let's look at some of the key words here in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 10. In verse, chapter 5, verse 6, it says we, are, we were weak, or another translation for the word is powerless. There wasn't anything we could do 
to achieve salvation. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says we can't understand spiritual things. John 3, verses 3 and 5, we can't see the kingdom of God or enter it. We don't even truly seek God. Romans 3, verse 11, right up in the passage in front of you, where he was quoting Psalm 14. And then Ephesians 2, 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's what he means, while we were still weak. Not only weak, we had absolutely no power at all to affect any sort of outcome other than death and destruction. And then it says, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's look at that word a little bit, the ungodly. Now, we've seen it before in, uh, in chapter... Uh, chapter 3. But here's another way of looking at the contrast. God is sovereign, meaning all-powerful, and we shout, you're not the boss of me. You cannot tell me what to do. God is holy, and we reject God's morality is unrealistic. Oh, no one could be perfect. Oh, come on. Just give us a little grace here. You know, have a little tolerance for my misbehavior. God is omniscient. He sees all. And so we think God is Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, and we treat God as if he's Santa Claus, some myth that we can dismiss as a childhood fantasy. Because the idea that God's watching us right now, seriously, really? You know, I don't see the webcam in this room. Also, God is unchanging. He's immutable. But we think that everything should evolve. Society changes, and so we need to adapt truth to match society's claims. That is being ungodly. And every single one of us is guilty of this. And then in verse 7, he tries to say, you know, some very few people would scarcely die for a righteous person, much less a good one. Well, we're neither righteous nor good. So that's almost a castaway point, cast-off point. Instead, it says, while we were still sinners. So we are sinners. We have to then define sin. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is going against the will of God. So one writer came up with this idea, which I thought was fascinating. He said to be godless is to break the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Because the first 
verses, or the first bits of the Ten Commandments according to our pizza chart over here, are all related to the upward, to our relationship with God. You shall ignore the gods before me, etc. To be wicked is to break the other half of the tablets, which is horizontal, with other people, envy, murder, stealing. That's what sin is. It does both. It's both ungodly and wicked. We break every one of the Ten Commandments. And even Jesus escalated the saying, even if you think it, you've done it. I always hated that verse. Like, Jesus, why'd you bring that up? You know, come on. Show us a little grace. Yeah, well, I did, but not in that instance. If you think it, it's in your heart. And then verse 10, it says, for if while we were enemies, now we've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm reciting the message so that we really grasp it. We are enemies of God. Now this is beyond just simply being separated from God. It means hostility. And that's chapter 8, verse 7 actually says that. Uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And if you have someone who you know is an enemy, and that can be in family relationships, it can be in the workplace, it could be between countries. What do you do with your enemy? You attack. You try to undermine, destroy, eliminate. If we could, we would drag God off his throne, pummel him in the streets, and kick him out of the country so we wouldn't have to deal with him anymore. That's hostile. That's being an enemy. And I wrote this at the bottom and I realized, wait, that's the name of a TV show that I've never seen, but I've heard a lot about. I wrote, this is us. So I went and looked up. What is that program about us? What, what that, and it's all about modern people, gay couples, and you know all sorts of family relations in a form of a comedy. And I'm realizing, well, yeah, this is us. It's a picture of our sinfulness, disguised as normal, evolved behavior. Against all of that, the weak, the powerless, the sinful, the ungodly, the wicked, the enemy of God, verse 8, God shows his love. He demonstrated his love for us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which is why I have handout number 2 in the back of your... Pages. Take a look at this little chart. 
actually took it out of a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce who said he found it in a brochure in a pamphlet that was handed out uh, at his church called The Greatest. Do you guys have it? See it? You can see John 3.16 is on the left-hand column. But each one of those words or phrases has a counter to it. So we talk about God who is the greatest lover, who so loved to the greatest degree the world, which is the greatest company that he gave, which is the greatest act, his only begotten son, which is the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity that anyone could ever have, believes the greatest simplicity in him who is the greatest attraction, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, which is the greatest possession. Well, I even wrote here, talk about John 3.16 without notes. that verse and that promise we should be meditating on this gift regularly and not in a sing-song fashion but to realize against the evil that is in our hearts the sinfulness that we display that despite all of that, God gave us His Son to die for our sins. The propitiation that I talked about a month ago in chapter 3, verse 25. That ultimate sacrifice, the blood sacrifice to cover the sins before God so God would not have to see our horrible horrible nature but instead sees his son and sees his blood instead of ours <laughs> we've sung it amazing love how can it be that you, my God, would die for me. I don't understand. I just don't understand this. So, I'm going to throw this into a group discussion for a second because I have a question for you. Why did God do this? What does he get out of it? What is the purpose of all of this discussion? What is the purpose of all this salvation of humanity? Why does God love us this way? You know, when we're going through some of these things, and uh, we're saying that these were uh, benefits, 
was thinking in some other words, because I see this uh, in, in many Christians, I have a question to myself and others, how big is my God? And I see this incredible list of benefits. Uh, and like you were just saying a little bit ago, this is really about God. This is not about us or other things. And if I understand the Romans, uh, he's talking, preaching, reminding the Christians at Rome, at that church, how big God is. And it's taken me a long time to understand some of these simple truths, but only in depthness, that many of these concepts that you go through here in churches and seminars. But I believe I have an incredibly big God who does so many more things than I would ever understand. So as I see them happen as I get older, I say, well, that was for you. That was you. No, that was you. Uh, and so I think it's here for us to be more grateful. Hmm. Any other thoughts? Yeah. I think back to um, where is creation? His children. We belong to him. And it's not something we're doing to deserve it, but since we are made in his image and we were created with a purpose. And what purpose were we created for? To praise him. To praise him. Okay, so now I'm going to be a skeptic. Well, that certainly sounds egotistical. <laughs> I'm going to make little praise people who are going to tell me how good I am because I've created them. So, how would you answer that? God is the only one who is allowed and properly so, to be selfish because everything is about him and everything does revolve around him. He's the only one who could, who could make that claim and get away with it, right? <laughs> God can be egotistical. egotistical that's, that's yeah. Now, of course, he displaces humility in Christ also. But um, yeah, I think the Christian answer is to bring glory to himself. Right. And then I've had people respond sort of in this way. Right. Like, oh, well, uh, and I think there's something misleading about that because it makes it sound like God wasn't glorious enough until he had us around and then we bring more glory to him and so he raises himself higher. Well, you can't get higher than God already is. Right? So it's uh, the, the phrasing to reflect his glory, right? mm -hmm. to, to uh, demonstrate his glory as opposed to make himself bigger in some way mm -hmm. as he can. I don't know that. There's also which is interesting. I've never seen it quite this way. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 says, The Lord set his love on you because the Lord loves you. Wait. What? The Lord set his love on you because he loves you. So the love is on us because he loves. It's, guess what? God is love. It's his character. It's part of his being. He can't not love. And we have to remember that, in that this is a demonstration of the character of God. Yeah. Would you say it is an aspect of that love that God does not annihilate even the wicked? 
that allows them of course you can get into that debate because then you start saying but God is also wrath he is also judgment so you say but you can't have both well yes you can if the solution to wrath is yourself he gave himself to propitiate to take away the wrath if it were otherwise it would be a conflict because then you have two elements or uh, attributes warring against each other. And uh, I think I brought that up when we were talking about this earlier in that in the Muslim faith, you have God is just and merciful. Well, they can't really reconcile the two because there's nothing in between to reconcile it. Whereas in Christianity, there is. So the justice of and the mercy actually come together because God provides the solution for that disparity. Anybody other have any other thoughts on this, this idea of God's love? So that Deuteronomy passage basically is a version of why are you doing this? Because I want to. Yeah. Yeah, kind of the parental thing. Yeah. Yeah. I want to. I, it's, it's who I am. That's why I want to give this to you. Not because I'm going to be praised. It's because this is just who I am. I am going to do this for you. It's kind of overwhelming. I mean, I started weeping last night when I'm studying this. I'm just going, oh my gosh, this is just so immense of what God has done for us. John MacArthur wrote, God never found anything in us that was good. He never found any, anything, of the, anything in us that was worthy. He never found anything in us that deserved salvation. Never loved us because of anything in us. Never loved us because we were lovable. Never loved us because we were valuable. You hear people talk about, all, talk about it all the time. Oh, you're so valuable. God loves you. No, you're not valuable. You're not valuable at all. And neither am I. Neither are any of us. The only value we have is to put God's grace on display. Sin has totally corrupted us. And he didn't save us for our value. He saved us for his glory. And Charles Hodge comes along and said, If God loved us because we loved him, he would love us only as long as we loved him and on that condition. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But God loved us as sinners. Christ died for us as ungodly. Our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of God's love. Which is why I started this entire section today on God's faithfulness. He promises us that He will do this. Then He does it. And then we come to it and go, but I don't deserve it. He goes, yeah, I know. I know. I did it anyway. And it's my gift to you. And that gift 
Romans 8.39. And I'm sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The consistency of Paul's statements here. A side note, a uh, commentator named Bruce Barton <clears throat> made an observation which I found absolutely fascinating. I meant to talk about it last week and ran out of time. But he noticed Paul's consistent linkage of faith, hope, and love in larger passages in Paul's letters. I mean, look, look at our passage today. We have faith in verse 1. We have hope in verse 4. And we have love in verse 5. We can all say the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, because you know, we have faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Remember that one. I mean, it's a long passage with a lot of stuff about all three. But it's also found in Galatians 5, 5 and 6. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17. 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 17. And Titus 3, 4 through 8. I'd never seen that before. I'd never noticed that before. We tend to make assumptions or we create our own mental cliches. And we never see the linkage between faith, hope, and love. But what we've done today is we start with that idea of faith, we go to define hope, and then we look at the love of God and see how it comes all the way back to the beginning. And it's that circle of who God is and what he has done for us in all things and in all ways. There's another fun little thing to notice. Let's see. Uh, erase this here. Oh, that's so erases so well. That's why we clean it. There we go. I don't want to waste any time to erase. <laughs> Notice something in verses 9 and 10. There is a parallelism in Paul's writing. <clears throat> Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from God's wrath by him. 
That's verse 9. Now, note the parallelism. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. Much more shall we be saved. by his life. Isn't that amazing? The intentionality of Paul contrasting each sentence in and of itself is a truism. But he's saying the same thing twice in just a slight difference and yet they don't disagree and they actually compliment and we miss it because we read straight through it and aren't even really looking at the passage that carefully but we should look at this word right here reconcile because that's a new word for us in our word studies in this passage we've talked about peace we've talked about faith We've talked about all sorts of other words. And now we come to the word reconciled. That's new. It isn't justified. It isn't righteousness. It's reconciled. The Greek word kataleke. One T. Alright. Lisa and I had Lots of discussions about this Greek word last night. We even looked it up in something called kills, for those of you who know what that means. Um, because I did not know this. In this verse, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5, William Tyndale, in doing his translation of the Greek New Testament into English, he was trying to come up with a different word for katalege instead of the Latin word reconcile. Because this is a Latin word. It's in the Vulgate. It's in, you know, it's been, been around forever. So he's trying to put it into English. So he tries to come up with, well, not what does katalege mean? And how is it used? And what could we do that's isn't a Latin word, but it's a different word. So he invented a word. That did not exist in the English language at that point. Wycliffe, a predecessor to Tyndale, talked about oneness. Tyndale said, no, wait a minute, there's another way we can do it, the at-one-ment of that reconciliation between God and man. Which is why, if you have a King James Bible, this passage reads, verse 10 and 11, it does read, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we'll be saved by his life, 
More than that, we rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received atonement. And that comes from William Tyndale. Now, it has been taken out of almost all, in fact, I, I should say almost all modern translations because the word atonement doesn't really mean reconciled now as we've become to define atonement. Because reconciled has nothing to do with sacrifice. The idea of putting blood on the altar and sacrifice for sins. Reconciliation is not that. Atonement is. But just for your tickles and grins, I decided to do a little study very quick study of William Tyndale. He also used other words that had not been used in the Bible before. He's the one who came up with the word Jehovah for the word Yahweh because of the Hebrew and the German translations of that Yahweh. He also was the first to use the word Passover in English. And you might go, wait, no, that's, this isn't a Hebrew word. He also used, he came up with the word scapegoat. William Tyndale actually influenced our English language in a way that I don't think many of us realize. If you go back in history, how much the Bible formulated how people spoke when the King, especially when the King James Bible was done. And the King James Bible was based on William Tyndale's work, even though at the time when he did it, they killed him for it. Uh, that's a whole other story. Uh, but very fascinating. Anyway, but we have this word reconciled, reconciliation. This is all just trivia, so we can just erase it. Okay, isn't that interesting? Um, but because I studied it, you have to hear it. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to waste my research. <clears throat> but think about the idea of reconciliation. When you and I might talk about, oh, let's say Jeff and I have a disagreement. You know, we just, we just, you know, and we just, like two bulls in a ring, we are battering heads on this, and we just finally say, we're going to agree to disagree. And then we hug it out. <laughs> we just reconciled. We reconciled our differences, but we maintained our identity. Now, that's one form of reconciliation. Another form of reconciliation is enemies who are no longer enemies. They have reconciled. And there's a lot of countries that may have had wars and then they reconciled and have not had a war since. Think of the United States and Mexico. Japan. Hmm? Japan, United States. Japan and the United States is even probably even better um, in that, boy, we had a conflict and some nasty things were done on both sides, really nasty. But then one of them won and they decided 
to cease hostilities and then begin to work together. Now the problem is, if we go back to our word faithfulness, uh, humanity tends to ignore treaties and contracts and they end up, you know, blowing up things anyway. Think of World War II. Um, <clears throat> but generally, reconciliation means the cessation of hostility. If we were enemies to God, and then it says we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that means the hostility ceases. And the opportunity for relationship begins. But it has had to happen through the death of a precious son for that to happen. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But there's one more thing to observe. And I love this about how Paul wrote this passage. Verse 9. He talks about us being justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from God's wrath by him. And then he says, ah, we've been reconciled by his death. And much more than this. It's the he keeps ratcheting it up, saying, we got this, much more, we'll be saved by his life. And then verse 11 begins with, and more than that. Look at their crescendo. If you're writing music, this is a music is swelling to a grand finale. More than that, we can exult. We can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And that goes back to what you were saying, being created for His praise. It's, we have this extraordinary idea of being justified by His blood, but much more. It's like, turn the page. There's another chapter. Okay, I can look at that. And then we have this. And much more than that, we can rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, uh, I love cake. I'm a cake hawk. <laughs> and to me, this is like layers of cake. There you go. It's a layered cake. <laughs> better and better. 
That's a perfect illustration. It just gets better. And it's almost like, okay, Paul, keep writing, please. Well, he does. He goes into chapter 6, which we will look at next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this. I'll tell you, when, Lord, when, when we study this passage, there is no way that we can have a hangdog expression on our face. There is no way we can look at life circumstances and just say there's no hope. We have you who has given us everything and we don't deserve a lick of it. Lord, we praise you, we thank you, we adore you, we, we love you for the love that you gave to us to justify us as righteous, to declare us as righteous, to reconcile us to yourself through such an extraordinary sacrifice. And all we can do is say, thank you, Lord. We love you. In your son's name, amen.